Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hey, Travis, I am delighted to have you back on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I think you are, as I was saying before we hit the record button, I think you are the most often, most frequent guest. Uh, we we officially get that uh, that badge. We'll put that on the, uh, we'll get you an honorable badge. Uh, kind of like the, uh, you know, on the SNL, those guys, uh, those guys and gals who host SNL, they all know how many times they've been the guest host and you've been my guest a number of times. So I'm delighted to have you back. Um we're going to talk about your article in uh, Responsive's recent uh, Carefully and Critically uh, journal. Uh, we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. But before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Jason's always great to be on the show. And as the most frequent guest, uh, I will take <laughs> that honor. But, uh, so I am uh, I'm Travis McDermott. I'm a development officer at Butler University. I'm also a faculty member with the Indiana University uh, Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, a faculty member with uh, Butler University's Department of Arts Administration, and also the founder of Role Identity Solutions, uh, 
my own consulting and uh, research practice. So uh, really happy to be here. Really was really honored to be asked to write for this journal as well, because as you know, I've come four times now with some very strong opinions, and now I got to put them on paper and uh, solidify them that way. So it's been a it's been a good run, and you know, really enjoy uh, what we've been doing here. Travis, before we dive into the the article that you wrote for the journal, um, I'm really convinced on the back, and you've heard me say this before. Last time we talked, um, I'm really convinced that fundraising is going to take a qualitative turn in a post pandemic sort of economy. And I really think that guys like you with role identity solutions, what you're the consulting work that you're doing on the backside of your PhD, I think is going to become particularly relevant. You've heard me say that before. Would you mind just sort of un 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 sort of unpacking a little bit of your work and the consulting work that you do so that my listeners who are perhaps thinking is for my listeners, you're hearing me, you're constantly hearing me say that this, this notion of a qualitative turn and if I think of anybody out there who perhaps really gets this qualitative turn, Travis, I think it's you. And it really goes all the way back to your 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 uh, your research. So unpack that for me, if you don't mind, real quick. Yeah, and I appreciate you uh, giving me that, that shout out. I think one reason why it's become such a – I'll even use this word, an obsession of mine, uh, this just the research side, qualitative and quantitative – yeah. It goes back to when I first started, and it's, it's even 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 true today. That, uh, and I'm sure we'll see this here in a few weeks when the next Giving USA uh, data comes out. Uh, yeah. That we will increase our dollar amount again, even with the pandemic. You know that, which is great. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to see, uh, and what I've heard from other organizations that donors really came out during the pandemic, and that was just uh, amazing to see. But most likely, if if history tells us anything, just like the past 15 years, our donor count will probably be lower this year than it was uh, the year before. And that has been something we have been seeing for quite some time. That in That is what drives me and what drove me to create Role Identity Solutions and what drove me to uh, uh, use my doctoral studies in the study mm-hmm. of philanthropy and how we can get people to start thinking philanthropically, how we can get nonprofits to start changing their mentality towards how they approach donors. And I think you're right. The qualitative side is the one area because we're really good at data. We're really good at quantitative data. You know, we have these yeah. huge databases. We have uh, you know, wealth engines. We have everything available. It, the qualitative side is where we have the most difficulty but we also know that's where the depth of knowledge is really going to come from that's going to drive the next generation of quantitative data. And the more we can get out of that, it's, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of conversations, focus groups, interviews. But it's extremely important uh, because at some point, that dollar amount and that donor loss are going to meet each other. And it's going to even out, and we're going to start seeing reductions. Uh, I mean, any economist can tell you that that's going to happen. Uh, so that's again, is why uh, I think I said that every time I've been on this podcast. I wrote yeah. that in the article in uh, carefully and critically, and I've pretty much wrote that every time I uh, put something out uh, on LinkedIn for the past two or three years. So, yeah. Uh, that is extremely important. We are taking that turn. People are starting to pay attention now. The pandemic probably put that more on the spotlight. 
uh, than we ever would have expected. Uh, so, you know, let's let's look at the good that came out of, you know, the last uh, 15 months. And let's start doing this. Let's, let's start putting more emphasis on this type of research and use it to, you know, get the, get the engine going, get us going in the right direction. Yeah. So that's a good lead into the, uh, so the, the name of the article that you, uh, that you wrote for us in the journal and folks, you can download, uh, Travis's, uh, article. You can download the entire journal, uh, at the, in the show notes. Uh, but the question you were asking Travis is what can we learn from bad market research? And, you know, as I was reading this, when you sent this to us a couple of months ago, before we, we published, um, you reminded me of something that I've always appreciated as I've gotten to know you more and more. You're an interdisciplinary guy and you're a storytelling guy. And so you incorporated a lot of things, kind of like in some of my own writing. You like to sort of reach out into other parts of the world beyond sort of the beyond fundraising and beyond the sector. And you start here with a story about Segway, for example. Um yeah, so what are you telling us here in this article? And we won't ask you to unravel the whole thing. We just want to give our listeners sort of a taste of what you're talking about in this article. Uh, but uh, what can we learn from bad market research? Yeah, the general idea is that uh, we can take examples from the for-profit world, which has existed a lot longer than formalized fundraising. We can take examples uh, that go back, you know, 100 years or more and apply those to situations uh, that we're seeing today in our, in our own work. And one of those being uh, the importance of market research. So everybody knows that market research is just a, is a huge part of the for-profit industry. They, uh, they, they spend billions of dollars in, in survey research and focus groups. This has to do with advertisement product placement. I mean, everything you could possibly imagine. And at the same time, there's some great work being done, but there's also some terrible uh, market research being done. So when I thought about this article, I wanted to think, okay, what was the what was some of the bad examples of market research that had been conducted over the last, and I think I, I went back probably like 30 years or so. And how can we apply that for a learning situation in the nonprofit sector and, you know, and in, in fundraising. And then, you know, the first thing that came to mind, uh, Jason, I, and I, I don't even know how it was the first thing that came to mind was the segue. And I think it was because I was in high school uh, or maybe the first couple of years of college when the segue first came out. And yeah, I, I think I was in college. Yeah. So you, yeah. I remember the first time we went to uh, <laughs> probably first time we went to Myrtle Beach or something. Probably, right? it was the, yeah. but this the um, the um, talk about this project that uh, yeah. uh, Dean Kamen was was putting together uh, was it was just this huge mystery, and for months it was you know. This is this new, newest thing in transportation that was going to hit the roads, and uh, even Steve Jobs saying, "You know, we're we're going to design future cities around this one product." It was that big, and had that much um, a momentum behind it. And and as I uh, as you'll read in the article, when the veil lifted, you know, on Good Morning America. Um, the reaction was not exactly what, uh, 
you know, all the hype had been hoping for. Uh, now, in reality, the segue was, and it still is, a piece of engineering genius. I mean, it is an absolutely amazing machine. Uh, yeah. And why it's only used for mall security and, uh, you know, uh, tours of, of, of cities and, you know, attractions is is beyond me but uh what happened you know now that we can dig into the uh the development of this product and all the hype that was created and everything that was put into it it all came down to just absolutely terrible market research as they were building this machine and so you know when i again was writing this article i thought about okay let's look at something that really I mean, just could have, could have, and still could have, I mean, it still has the potential to do it, could revolutionize in this particular area, you know, transportation yeah. uh, and failed miserably. Uh, yeah. And it failed in a way that just made you actually feel bad for how bad yeah. it was. Um, and so again, how can, how can we take this, how can we take this as a learning situation and put it into uh into the fundraising sector and the whole point of it for, for that particular story. And of course I go into others as well is if when you're only looking at certain populations or if you're only studying for one particular thing, uh, if you're only taking one factor in account uh, when you're trying to think about what your donors want to support or what they do not, you're going to fail 99% of the time and you're going to end up like the Segway. Um, and in the Segway's case, the only market research they did was for the, is it was with the uh, Silicon Valley elite, Steve jobs type. Of course they love this product. It was $5,000, which was out of the price range of just about every American family at that time. Um, <laughs> And all of that was completely ignored because they were yeah. only looking at one and talking to one segment of the population. So let's take this lesson and put it into a fundraising situation. Um, and I've written about this before. I believe I've even talked about it on this podcast. We have a tendency in nonprofits, and I use the royal we. I am a fundraiser, and I you know, always yeah. uh, proudly uh, say that. Uh, we have a tendency when we decide uh, what our campaigns are going to be, what our priorities are going to be, how we are going to go about doing our work, to have extremely in-depth conversations with those who support us at the highest levels. So our yeah. board of directors, our major and principal donors, even into yeah. our you know, even our annual and leadership donors. Those are the ones that we seek out information for. Uh, but in many cases, those represent such a small population of who is actually uh, involved with your organization or could be involved with your organization that you're only getting just one side of the story. It, it's like it's like the news media and how it's taken the political turns. If you only read one side, well, of course you're only going to think one way. Um, yeah. You know, when there's a whole other side of the story that may be there, uh, it would be almost like uh, in another case, a jury only hearing from the defense and never from the prosecution. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, so in the case of the Segway, 
yeah, when they were talking to the elite, they were all about it. We'll buy them. We'll drive them around. We don't care that they kind of look funny. Um, it's a great product, and this could be a very uh, useful and environmentally friendly thing to have uh, to ride around. But again, when they unveiled it to the general population, there were just so many more questions that were just unanswered uh, when it actually hit the market that it ended up in the fate that it's at today. And that's, you know, again, where I started and where I wanted to take uh, this particular article and was really happy with the you know, turnout. When, when, when you talk about um, – because one of the other ideas that you talked about here, and I really like the way that you put it, the, the notion of short-sightedness of donor-only research. I'm reminded of some research that I have I had read uh, that I've been actually incorporated in the new book. Um, Damon Centola has been looking at the difference um, at Penn for quite some time, the difference between how we spread um, information versus how we spread behavior. And, and spreading behavior requires – what he refers to, and we all know and understand to be sort of social reinforcement. And it's sort of recognizing that even as so when we think about this in the context of fundraising, there's a sphere of influence that sort of exists around each one of our donors who are not necessarily our donors. And that if you sort of, if you only in a very reductionist sort of way, only focus on the donor themselves, you only learn so much. But if there's four or five other individuals influencing this person's decision, who perhaps isn't a donor, but who ha who does play a role, you know, the connectivity of sort of our world, who does play a role in influencing this person's decision, um, that becomes particularly important. Um I have to imagine that's some of the stuff that's sort of informing your thinking here. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, that was one of the pieces of my dissertation research was the social side. I mean, I, I took a sociological yes. approach yes, to, exactly. um, to studying because when I was looking at – again, this was back in 2009 when I first started um, – when I was looking at the research that had been done, it was, again, on donor populations, but it was also on factor analysis. So it was, okay, someone's more likely to give if they live closer to the organization or somebody's likely to give if they do this or this or this. You know, that's meaningless in reality, in, in, in a practitioner standpoint. So I wanted to figure out, okay, we got to dig a little bit more into mindset, and when you start – if we start looking at it that way, you realize the importance of the social aspect, and there was a social aspect of my work, and it sounds like there's uh, work that's continuing there. Uh, interesting side note, uh, I just have been recently listening to a few podcasts with uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini, uh, who you may know. He's the uh, author of the extremely popular Influence uh, Principles, of, uh, Principles and Practices, I believe is the rest of the name of that. But he just put out a new version of it after 13 years. I mean, he put out a new version of, this, of the book, and he added in a, another factor. So he had six factors. Now he has seven that influence behavior, and it being unity was the seventh factor. And unity yeah. really being that tribe mentality that mm -hmm. we have evolved that does drive what we do. If your friends do it, we do it. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's very important. Uh, but it's how do you, again, if you're wanting to change behavior, 
then how do you use that unity aspect in order to uh, have influence on individuals, have influence on populations? Uh, but to do that, of course, you have to know what the entire population is thinking first, or at least the target population that you're going for um, with your organization or with your efforts. Yeah, you know, it's um, that, that notion of a tribe. So at, at Responsive, one of the things that we – so we organize capital campaigns, and we organize our capital campaigns in four waves. And each wave is sort of centered around this idea of almost like these mini tribes. So you're sort of trying to – with the first wave, it's a very small, perhaps five or six donors, but and they're all sort of influencing each other's decisions in some way or another, oftentimes in, in communities that organize around nonprofits. But there's a tribe, there's almost like a tribal sort of understanding that um, that without being able to influence one of those individuals thinking, you may not be able to successfully influence the others. And, um, and, and I think all of this becomes all the more relevant as our world, you know, we've all experienced this complete transition over, you know, in the midst of this pandemic. This is the last question I'll have you sort of respond to. But how much more relevant is all of this now when we see like our our lives just completely went virtual for the last 18 months? So anything that we were doing in the social space. Right. So whether I was interacting with you on the podcast a couple of times or if you got if you and I were colleagues on a team at the office, doesn't really matter. We're all in this sort of this hyper connected sort of virtual space. So I'm just curious, based on your, you know, your your previous research, the role, the work that you do, consulting work, as well as what you wrote about here in this article, how much more relevant is it given this sort of this just current context that we're in? I, I think it's extremely relevant because uh, it's almost as if in some ways we will have to reform those tribes um, as yeah. we – you know, the virtual environment saved our economic – you know, our economy. It saved many workplaces. It saved many nonprofits, and it has yes. it's done great things. But at the same time, we are a species that craves the interactions uh, with, with others. Uh, so we've we've lost that for now over a year, and we are starting to rebuild that. And and I, I've even noticed that in my own work, donors who I got to know very very well, uh, I am just now meeting with face to face. Even though I kept up conversations for the past fifteen months, I'm meeting yeah. with them face to face, and it's almost as if I'm doing that discovery visit all over again. Um, so. That's, I think, what we're – that's what we're getting ready to kind of face uh, in, in what a lot of people are already facing uh, here as we shift back into whatever we're going to consider normalcy now and um, to rebuild uh, these uh, – Help me understand that. Why are you doing that? Um, that's fascinating. Why are you doing that? So, so these are people that you're interacting with throughout the pandemic, but you're – you're doing discovery work now because you're saying that in some ways they're they're where they fit in the world and they're sort of their quote unquote tribal associations have sort of perhaps morphed and changed like the qualitative indicators that we would sort of that might have influenced their decision making is am I putting the am I connecting the dots correctly that they may in in, in effect be a different person than you might have known prior to the pandemic oh absolutely they're 100% a different person they were. I'm a different person than I was yeah, uh, yeah, prior to the fine. pandemic. Yes. So uh, if I'm meeting 
again, the donor who I had spent two and a half years cultivating, if I'm meeting with them, and this is the first time we have been in person right in front of each other, uh, it is too, it's a different Travis and it's a different donor uh, that is is having that conversation. Now, it may be small small interaction or small things that we do that are irrelevant to the work that I'm actually doing for my organization. Yeah. But in some cases, it actually may be extreme uh, because with this pandemic, extreme things did happen. Uh, extreme yeah. measures did take place. Uh, some people took it very seriously. Some people did not. Uh, some people um, had unfortunate uh, loss in it. And yes, some people right. did not see any loss from it. And you know, as a gift officer, that's, you know, things we have to be sensitive of, you know, where are they in the space or in the world that exists now, not in the world that existed, you know, in March 11th, you know, 2020. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and I have to kind of approach people with that little bit of caution as I would with the discovery visit, uh, just because of all the changes happened and everything that's, you know, revolved around the world uh, here for the past 15 months. So now how does that fit into what I wrote about in you know, nonprofit <laughs> research? But I actually think it really is relevant in that regard because, I mean, if we if we didn't know the people who we wanted to recruit as donors or if we wanted to get to upgrade or we wanted to bring in the fold, if we didn't know them then, we definitely don't know them now. And uh, so let's take some opportunity and learn where people are, you know, have their priorities shifted? Are there things within the realm of our organizations that they may more uh, be in focus with than they were a long time ago? I'll actually give you a real world example. Uh, My area of focus at Butler University is the Performing Arts College. And, you know, prior to COVID, our performances happened. There were, you know, the audience were filled. Uh, everybody had a great time. They came, they left, and we talked about it, and they support us that way. Well, now we have a great uh, interest in live streaming. You know, because live streaming, there's there's a lot more to live streaming than just turning on the camera and having the production uh, being played out. There are there are many many aspects, but I've had already a, you know, conversations I never thought I'd be having with donors about potential, you know, particular or gifts for, you know, this one area uh, that we had never even thought about 24 months ago. And, um, and it's also opened up our space in regards to people outside of, you know, the, the viewing audience of central Indiana, in my case, that uh, are now more likely to be donors. uh, Even though we may never have a face-to-face conversation, it may always be virtual. But they've they've connected with us even greater because of the streaming aspect. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so much more to learn now. It's just a different world, but that's what makes that's what makes it exciting and I, keeps I think, it interesting. So, yeah, I, I think that's what keeps bringing me back to. And you've 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 used the word learning. There, there's a there's a I'm I'm a big fan of John Hagel, a researcher on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, and he's talking about how our economy has moved from a scalable efficiency to scalable learning, and he's talking about how our entire worldview has been shaped by this big shift over the last two decades, and and I think when you read between the lines of everything he's talking about, it is this qualitative sort of 
um, understanding people's identity and where they find meaning. And so that's, again, that's sort of part and parcel why our conversations are so fascinating. And then, you know, Travis, every time you come on here right towards the end, I, I warm you up to the place where you give me a little nugget of wisdom there at the end. Um, that's absolutely brilliant. Our donors have in many ways. I don't think I've read a guest in the last several months say anything of that sort. That is absolutely brilliant. Our donors probably have most definitely have evolved if nothing else in their prioritization of resources. And I think that's some of the, I think if we go into those, if we resume those conversations with, which I think is what you just really said, if we try to resume relationships where they were, where we left them perhaps pre pandemic in a very presumptuous sort of way, we're probably going to really botch things up, right? <laughs> we could have some trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, Travis, uh, I'm delighted that you're back with me. I promised you I'd only have you for about 20 minutes. Um, if somebody's listening to the, uh, those of you who are interested in downloading Travis's article, as well as the other four, three articles, uh, contributions in our first edition of Carefully and Critically, please do that. You can find that in the show notes as well as on the responsive fundraising website. Travis, if they're interested in reaching out to you, learning more about Role Identity Solutions, how would you suggest that they do that? Uh, you can visit me at roleidentity.com uh, or you can uh, always connect with me on LinkedIn. Every time I come on the show, I have some great conversations uh, with with folks on LinkedIn. It's at J Travis McDearman or at Role Identity Solutions. And uh, happy to uh, have a discussion. We can continue this offline. All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.